0: Good morning, today we launch into a series called Online. It's a four-week series as we talk about how it is that we live out the gospel in the digital age. I'd encourage you to make an intentional decision to be here for all four weeks. I think that as we leave behind some of the chaos of the world and the digital age, and explore the Word of God together, whether you're a Christian or not, I believe that you'll be blessed and encouraged through this series. So I'd love for you to join us for all four weeks. Today, as you saw in my diary entry, uh, and I need to update my computer, by the way, uh, as you saw in my diary entry, that we are, uh, we are exposed to a lot of different uh, views and opinions and perspectives out there, and oftentimes it makes us want to fight. And so today we're talking about fighting fair. Now, uh, I asked the interwebs and many of you on social media, what is it that people today fight about? And uh, I have a little list. And perhaps if this is something that you think people fight about or maybe that you've yourself fought about, you could maybe give a little mm-hmm. That would be fine. That would be fine to do. Politics. Religion. Money. The Dallas Cowboys. (laughs) In order of priority. Civics. Parenting, breastfeeding, my rights versus the rights of others, black lives matter, blue lives matter, stay-at-home mom versus working mom, my kids. hmm Abortion, the ice cream dish that I left in the sink and did not put in the dishwasher, which is another word for unmet expectations. Law enforcement, food, where to eat, What are we going to eat? When are we going to get there? Can't you just pick? (laughs) Art, theater, music, the nature of the good, laws and the legal system, theology, family business. Mm -hmm. Control. And what is right and what is wrong. And the list goes on and on and on. You see, the digital age presents for us a unique problem because uh, throughout the corridors of time, usually a person had a couple of crazies that were in their sphere, and they relegated them to crazy uncle status. We've all had this, you know, you gather for Thanksgiving or Christmas, and here they come in, and you know they're going to talk about that thing, and you know that their opinions are completely off base, but you kind of say, well, they're family, that's my crazy uncle, so be it. But the digital age has put forth to us uh, all of those dinner table conversations are now happening publicly, and there's a lot more crazy uncles than we used to think. (laughs) Mm hmm And we discover that people disagree and come from different perspectives and have different opinions. And so how is it in this context, in this culture, in this moment, the digital age, how is it that the gospel applies? And so I am going to be reading from Titus 3, uh, verses 1 through 11. Titus 3, 1 through 11, you can turn there in your Bibles if you have them. We'll have it online as well. Also, Bibles are available for you on the tables in the back. Now, uh, I'm going to read this, and I want you to think through... How does this relate to fighting? Okay, because we're fighting each other all the time now. How does this relate to fighting? How does this relate to my engagement with others, digital or not? How does this relate to the conflict that I experience in my life with other people? You guys ready? Can we do that? Now, I want to tell you, generally speaking, second hour is my favorite. (laughs) But first hour was exceptionally responsive today, and so far, you guys are at 10 out of 400. So, what we're going to need to do is take it up a notch. Okay, so are you guys ready to engage the text together with me? Yeah. There we go. Ooh, see, now we're at 18 uh, over where they were at this time last hour. Verse 1, chapter 3. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities. <laughs> I see where this is headed. Great. To obey. To be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind always, showing gentleness to all people except the ones I don't like, right? Is that what it says? No. Just all people. Keep going, verse 3. For we too, so why? For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed God might be careful, check it out, careful to devote themselves to good works, These are good and profitable for everyone. Verse 9, but avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. This is the word of the Lord. And so it starts here, right? Submission, gentleness, respect, grace. Don't fight these ridiculous fights. Don't quarrel. Why? And the author here is is a dude named Paul. He's writing to a guy named Titus. That's why the, the book in the Bible is called Titus. And he says this. Verse 3, for we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in the malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But, verse 4, when the kindness of God our Savior in his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. This is the gospel. When we talk about living the gospel out in the digital age, the gospel is this, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you turn to the book of Genesis, which is the beginning of the Bible, it says this, that God made people unique. He made people as the crowning glory of all creation, made for relationship with him. Genesis 1 and 2 showcase this, that in the beginning, God created, creation. But in Genesis 3, we have recorded for us something called the fall, that the people made in the image and likeness of God rebelled against God. They fell from grace. They replaced God on the throne of their hearts with themselves. You've heard of Adam and Eve and the fruit? Okay, we're gonna do this one more time. Have you heard of Adam and Eve and the fruit? Do you think it was about fruit? It was about rebellion. It was removing God off the throne of our hearts and placing ourselves as the center of the universe. And this cosmic rebellion is death because we are not made to be the center of the universe. We are made as created beings meant for relationship with the creator and when we put ourselves in the creator's place, we crumble. And God had an option. One, put on the Metallica CD and kill them all. Just it up. There it is. Love that album. Great album. It was, it was not as good as Ride the Lightning, but it was a good album. He could have pushed the kill them all button, but in his grace and mercy, which the text says, his grace and mercy, look at what it says, the kindness of God our Savior, his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. He could have chose to destroy us, but instead he chose to save us. Creation, fall, redemption. 2,000 years ago in space-time history, the same sun that oppressively shines on our face today in Phoenix shone on God in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. And he lived among us, subjected himself to every trial that you and I experience. And he allowed himself to be crucified on a Roman cross So that by his death, the penalty for our rebellion would be paid. So that God could be just and we could be justified. So that God could be true to his word and we could still be in right relationship with him. And Jesus died and they put him in a grave. And three days later... He rose from the grave, conquering over Satan, sin, and death, and today he stands victorious, ready to give life and life abundant to all who call on the name of the Lord. And the message of the gospel is this, turn from your sin, turn from your rebellion, and look to God, and he is ready, willing, and able to receive you, not because you're a good person. Did you catch in the text? You ain't saved because you're doing good. You will, like you're kidding yourself if you think I'm gonna go to heaven because I'm a good person. Like, do you know God sees your motives? Like, even if you're doing good, if you're doing it to manipulate him, that's corruption. Like, there's no hope in our good works. And the message of the gospel is this, is we are not saved. It says it here in the text. We are not justified by our good works. We are made right, put in right relationship with God because of what he has done, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And all who call on the name of the Lord are saved. Okay, now, what about Facebook? Like, what about Twitter? Because here's the thing, Jesus. Right? Creation, fall, redemption. Jesus came. He died. He rose from the grave. And then he ascended into heaven. But here's the thing. He told us before he ascended into heaven, one day I'm coming back to restore all that which is broken. And so right now, today, we live in the time between his accomplished redemption and the promised restoration that comes in the future. And it's by his grace that he waits so that more can be saved. But that means that he has already finished the work, but we have not yet experience the fullness of that healing and I'll prove it to you go on social media you want proof of the corruption of mankind facebook twitter right here we go now by the way all twitter and facebook do is expose what's in all of our hearts anyways so don't be sitting here in judgment if you don't have a facebook and twitter account like they're the only ones with problems The gospel shapes what we fight about, how we fight, and why we fight. What we fight about, how we fight, and what we fight about. First, in the text, it does say avoid fighting, but Paul here can't mean avoid fighting about everything because earlier in the text, in Titus chapter 1, he is fighting against people, religious leaders, who are being abusive and deceitful. And so here Paul can't mean don't fight for anything, don't ever fight, but what he's making the point is this, and you can see it here in the text, avoid foolish fighting. Avoid fighting about things that are not as important. You saw it there, meaningless, worthless. And so we are to fight for the things that God fights for. We are to fight for the things that God calls us to fight for. One question I would encourage you in all the fights that you have is to ask this question. To what degree, or how much, does God call me to fight for this thing? How much does God call me, or His church, or us, to fight for this thing? To the degree that He calls us to fight for it, we should shape our actions, our attitudes and our statements. Because there are many of us who are fighting about verse nine, foolish debates quarrels, disputes about the law. Now, that's not the law of the land. That's the law in the text, in the scriptures. It's a theology debate. And real quick, there is, within the church, so for those of us who, if you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here today, Because and you're here, this is lucky for you because I'm gonna yell at the Christians right now. So watch this. So Christian, there's this thing that kinda happens sometimes where we take an open-handed issue and we close our fist around it and we fight each other about it. We take something that righteous, well-meaning, thoughtful people disagree on and we close our fist around it and we make it an ultimate issue and then we fight one another about it. I'll give you an example. Now, I need you throughout the rest of this sermon, friends, okay, acquaintances and enemies, I need you to hear me on this. I, want you to, I need you to watch my words carefully. Okay? because we're about to get real. There are some of us who will take something like an interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2, which I just referenced, and we will make a, 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 an enormous deal about this question, how old is the earth? And there are some righteous, thoughtful people who are following after Jesus who think, well, the earth, you know, it, it says six days, it's six literal days, and if you count back the genealogies, the earth is about six to 8,000 years old. okay. Then there's others who say, when I read Genesis 1 and 2, from the studying that I've done, it seems to be ancient Hebrew poetry. I don't think there's six literal days, and the earth is as old as it seems to be because God's given us a mind to analyze the universe, and through that analyzation and God-given tools, I think the earth is billions of years old, just, and that's why everything looks so old. <laughs> now, I'm not, I'm not trying to make light. I, I, are you guys watching my words? You laughed. I didn't laugh. And there are others who say, you know, I I think that God used the evolutionary process to bring about his creation. That's why in the text it says, let the earth bring forth. Now, TV time out. I hope you were listening carefully because did I tip my hat to which one I am? I don't think I did. And I might change my mind too because it's an open-handed issue and it's not exceptionally clear. Nowhere in Scripture does it say this is how old the earth is. Jesus never says, blessed are those who think the earth is this age. It's an open-handed issue. But there are some of us who would take a pet issue and form a fist around it and use it to break the direct command of Jesus. We would break unity and fellowship with one another. Like unity and fellowship is the thing that Jesus calls his church to fight for. Now, on the flip side, you take something like the physical resurrection of Jesus. I know not all of us here are Christians. I just want to tip my hat to this, and I will tell you what I think. Jesus rose from the grave physically, Otherwise, he didn't conquer over Satan, sin, and death. And hanging on the physical resurrection of Jesus is the entirety of the gospel and is the entirety of our hope. And I would love to talk with you and reason with you from the scriptures and from history why it is that all of it points to the physical resurrection of Jesus. Now, the physical resurrection of Jesus is explicitly clear in the text and fists get formed around it because it is a closed-handed issue. It's a matter of orthodoxy. If you give up the physical resurrection of Jesus, you basically give up the gospel. You change your mind on how old the earth is, you change your mind on how old the earth is. Do you see? And so when it comes to, these are good things to discuss, but if they become fights and sources of division within the church, we are breaking the higher law of unity in the midst of diversity. Here's another thing, real quick. Um, yeah, like th- this sermon's gonna be bad for you. Um, like a lot of us, myself included, but a lot of y'all too, are borrowing other people's convictions you read an author that you love, there's a celebrity that takes a stand on this thing, there's a political personality that believes this thing, and you just like that person, and so you're borrowing their convictions rather than prayerfully being discipled by Jesus through his word to form your own perspectives and convictions, so please stop. Don't borrow other people's convictions. Make sure that the thing that you are fighting about is actually a thing you actually really believe and are fighting about. Otherwise, we're just promoting celebrities and not Jesus. Like, you shouldn't believe something just because I believe it. I know I'm not anyone's favorite pastor, but I like to, in my uh, daydreams, I like to imagine that I'm, uh, somebody's got my picture, you know, on the, on the <laughs> like, autographed or something like that. Maybe my mom. I'll talk to my mom about that. I think she should get mine. My... So, uh, here's, the, here's the deal, though. Look at verse 8. So, we fight about what God calls us to fight about. Look at verse 8. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things, that those of you who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to what? Good works. Using our skill, our financial resources, and our voices to do good. And if you read through the scriptures, one of the things that you see is that Jesus is consistent in calling his church and his followers and his disciples to stand for and to fight for the voiceless, the marginalized, the disenfranchised, the abandoned, betrayed, and abused. And we, the scripture straight up calls us to fight for those things. Now there are some of us uh, who think through, okay, well, you know, I don't know so much about that. That's, that seems like, you know, it seems like a liberal agenda. Yeah, man, I, if, you're, if you're thinking that right now, like just go back home and read the words of Jesus and, and stop being discipled so much by these news outlets and start being discipled by Jesus. Like, the, the things that are debated and discussed in the political sphere, that changes over time. And just because one side or the other or the other views a, per- a certain position one way or the other, that does not override Jesus. In the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, a group of very powerful, affluent aristocrats in Britain who believed the gospel and believed in the authority of the word of God and were compelled to live out the gospel by doing good works formed a group called the Clapham Society. And the Clapham Society was one of the first, what, what, and I'm not using this in a political sense, I'm using it in a the theological sense. The Clapham Society was primarily, you, you, you could name it an evangelical activist group. And they gathered together based on the firm foundation and, author, and the authority of scripture and the power of the gospel, and they did things like they fought for the abolishment of the slave trade, they formed societies to pay for and to fund and to help support exploited and abandoned and abused women. They fought against illiteracy. They fought against poverty. They fought for prison reform. They fought against uh, blood sport. They would go to parliament, and on the behalf of the poor, the disenfranchised, the abandoned, betrayed, and abused, they would use their voice to speak based on their firm conviction that Jesus calls us to live out the gospel. Some of the members of the Clapham Society, you may be uh, familiar with some of these people. John Newton. Was he the guy who wrote Amazing Grace? Is that right? Yeah. You guys ever heard that song, Amazing Grace? Yeah, it's a classic. (laughs) Hannah Moore, an activist and an author. William Wilberforce, who fought to end and succeeded in ending the slave trade in Britain. Convinced of the power of the gospel. And convinced that Jesus calls us to fight for the things that he cares about. What do we fight for? We fight for the things that God calls us to care about how much does God tell me to care about this topic? When we're fighting with one another, ask yourself, how much does God tell me to care about this topic? So if we're to fight for the things that God calls us to fight for, how should we fight? I'm glad you asked. Ephesians 4.15 says this, it's two words. Any fight that you get into, I want you to remember these two words. Truth and love. This is Ephesians 4.15. Speak the truth in love. Let us grow in every way into him who is the head, namely Christ. As we're becoming more and more like Christ, we will more and more speak the truth in love. love. Okay, so we're quiet there. Everyone loves the truth part. Let's do it again. We're going to speak the truth in love. Yeah, and don't you forget it. Speak the truth in Love. First, the truth. I don't think we need a ton of work on this, and so I'll just give it to you, especially in the digital age. When I was in seminary, I would write papers, and they would always take off points if I didn't cite my sources. Why did my professors want me to cite my sources? Because they wanted to make sure that what I was communicating was true. Now, friends, we've all got our favorite news outlets We've all got our favorite blog posts or newspapers. We've all got our favorite editorial, uh, editorials and opinion writers. And I'm just here to tell you that just because it's in print does not mean that it is true. There is a propensity for us to share and to post and to propagate lies simply because they line up and confirm our prejudices. This agrees with everything I think, therefore it must be true. I've met with people and things have come out of their mouth that are so astoundingly false, like blatantly unquantifiable. And I say, you should join me on July 8th for the sermon I'm gonna do, because you're gonna make it in the sermon as an illustration. (laughs) Okay, I'm coming to your neighborhood right now. Here we go. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus' way is the way of truth. I'm I'm in your neighborhood right now. Satan is known as the father of lies. And to propagate lies is to be in league with Satan. A careless Sharing of false information propagates the agenda of the father of lies. So please, cite your sources. Simply because something lines up with our prejudices does not mean it's true. And so, that's speaking the truth, but what we need to work on is love. How is it that we are to love? Well, one of the things that Jesus consistently says is love your neighbor as your So how would I desire to be loved? Look at verse two. Slander no one. (whistles) Slander who? Even the people I don't like? Slander no one. Be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Who fits in the all people category? the people you hate, your crazy uncle, your insane niece who just is visiting from Berkeley. Yeah, they're all fitting. (laughs) They're all fitting in the all-people category. And our responsibility to them is gentleness, hmm, kindness, avoiding foolish debates. Uh, Stephen Covey in his book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People says this, seek first to understand, and then to destroy. Wait, is that right? (laughs) No. Seek first to understand, oh, and then to be understood. Seek first to understand and then to be understood. If earlier I was in your neighborhood, now I'm walking down your street. Let's talk about protests. Let's talk about the NFL. Let's talk about the different movements that are happening, Blue Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. Let's talk about what happened at the Capitol last week. I told you I'm in your neighborhood. What do we got? We got some uh, don't slander anybody, show gentleness to all people, be kind, and strive to understand. Listen, if you are in a fight, real or imagined, and you are not in a position, I need you to follow me in this. If you cannot articulate the opposing view in a way that those who believe in that view would wholeheartedly agree with, you have not yet understood. do that one more time. Basically, if you have someone who has an opposing view and you are not able to articulate that view in a way that those who believe in that view would wholeheartedly agree with, you have not truly understood. You have caricaturized the other, which is not loving, See, it gets quiet when I'm in the neighborhood, but I'm going to be knocking on your door. There's five levels of communication, church family. I'm going to talk to the Christians here. There's five levels of communication. We can put them up here on the screen. Cliché. What's cliché? How you doing? Good. Yeah. Have we communicated? No. Cliché. Facts. What's the weather like outside? It's hot. Great. Have we communicated? Yeah. At a deeper level than cliché? Yeah, but we haven't really gone anywhere, have we? How about opinion? What's it like outside? It's hot, which sucks. (laughs) Level three. Level four, feelings. It's hot outside, and I don't like that, and it makes me feel homesick. Now I've given you a piece of myself, haven't I? I've communicated to you my feelings. And level five is really difficult to put into words because level five transparency is communicating at such an intimate deep level, you just walk away feeling like you've engaged the actual real person. Now, I said I was gonna be knocking at your front door. There was a young African-American man who was shot by a police officer. He was unarmed and at the trial, he was uh, exonerated. Remember I said, I want you all to watch what I say real careful? Okay, watch. And there was a member of this congregation who said publicly and to me privately, she was operating at level four, I'm so sad and I fear for my boy. And someone else in this congregation responded to that level four communication with, Well, actually, statistics show that these types of things happen less and less. They responded to feeling with what? Fact. Now, number one, is that the most loving thing that we can do? It does not lead to flourishing. Now, to engage at the level of feeling, to, as the scripture says, weep with those who weep, and mourn with those who mourn, and rejoice with those who rejoice, if we are to do that, we have to operate at the same level of communication, and we have to recognize what it is we're communicating about. We're not operating, we're not communicating about facts. When you say, this hurts me, this pains me, I'm scared. Operating at the feeling level, communicating, seeking to understand and to love, is to be able to say, I'm scared for your son too. Or, it makes me feel sad that you're scared. Every time I respond to my wife's communication about her feelings with facts, I get punched in the throat. <laughs> I feel like we're not spending enough time together. Well, actually, I have a time log of all the time that we've spent together. <laughs> if we're to love, how we fight is so important to respond to the person who says, I'm so angry that I can't find a job with, well, actually, unemployment is an all-time low. You take any issue, and one of our greatest problems as a church, and as a community, as in a culture, is that we're operating at different levels at the same time, and we're misfiring. We're not really communicating. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. Don't attack. Do you like being attacked? Do you like being called names? I I, I was reading a couple years ago. uh, Actually, it was a few years ago after we had our first kid. And um, I know this is this is you know this is a thing that many people now are are engaging in. And it was basically the breastfeeding versus um, formula feeding conversation. And I stumbled upon the comment section of one of those blog posts, and Hitler's name was invoked. Like, you feed your baby powder? Hitler did that. What's that? It's calling someone names. It's not engaging in communication. It's just trying to hurt somebody by calling them a name. Am I speaking the truth in love? So how much does God tell me to care about this topic? Number two, am I speaking the truth in love? Verse two, gentle. Verse four, kindness. So what we fight about, and how we fight, and finally, why we fight. Do you fight to win? I would encourage you to fight to win. In fact, I would say there's no reason to fight unless you are fighting to win. Everyone's waiting for the pivot, right? (laughs) Yeah, you guys know what I'm doing. That's an old trick. Fight to win what? What? Do you fight to win the debate or do you fight to win the flourishing of the other? Do you fight to win the argument or do you fight to win a friend? You see, it is tempting to fight to win the debate and win the argument, but what Jesus calls us to do is to fight to win a friend, to fight to win their flourishing. I'll prove it to you. Did Jesus use his power to fight to win an argument about who is God? By killing everybody. Remember the gospel we talked about a minute ago? The very essence of the gospel is that Jesus fought not to win the debate. Jesus fought to win his family back. And what did it cost him? His life. Are you fighting to win? Fight to win, family. Hmm. This means that we are to be patient with one another, to consider how we're feeling and how they're feeling, to check our unrighteous anger and rage at the door or our unrighteous critical attitude at the door and seek the flourishing of the other. The people that you disagree with are sinners in need of a savior. You already know that, don't you? Because you don't like them. The people that you disagree with are sinners in need of a savior, and so are you. So we need to be patient with one another, long-suffering with one another, bearing one another's burdens so that we can fulfill the law of Christ to love our neighbor as ourself. Am I fighting to win the argument, or am I fighting to win their flourishing? Three things to ask as we apply the gospel in the digital age. How much does God tell me to care about this topic? Two, am I speaking the truth in love? And three, am I fighting to win the argument or am I fighting to win their flourishing? Would you join me as we pray?